This morning, we are in a series called Royals, Becoming Who We Are, and it's a series to look at our identity. Who are we really? Who am I really? As a follower of Jesus, what is most significant about me? What is most significantly true about me? And you know what? That is determined more than anything else by how God sees me and what God says about me. When God looks at me, what does he see? When he looks at you, what does he see? What does he say about us? Because if anyone has a clear view of who we are, it's God. We can put on a show for everyone around us, right? We can pretend to be something we're not and forget about other people, right? We have misperceptions about ourselves, We don't see ourselves clearly. We have a distorted picture of our true identity. But God sees us as we really are. He sees us with perfect clarity. And what he says about us, how he sees us, is what matters most of all. And so that's why we're doing this series. That's why we're doing this series. Because we want to catch a glimpse of ourselves through the eyes of God. When God looks at us, what does he see? Now, the answer to that question is tied up in Jesus and what he has done for us on the cross. Jesus died on the cross for us. And that has massive, earth-shaking implications for our true identity and how God sees us. So in light of that, there's a question that I want us to chew on this morning. Jesus came to die for us, right? He died for us. But what was his ultimate purpose for us in doing that? What was Jesus' ultimate goal for us when he went to the cross? Yes, his, his goal was to glorify God, bring glory to God in heaven. But what about for us? What was his ultimate goal and purpose for me and for you? You know, how we answer that question dramatically shapes how we view ourselves, how we view God, and how we try to live out our faith. You know, Jesus accomplished a lot on the cross. So off the top of our head, we might say something like, well, his ultimate goal for us was to save us from hell and to get us to heaven, but that's not it. That wasn't his ultimate goal. Or we might say it's to justify us, for God to offer us forgiveness and acceptance, but that's not the right answer either. Well, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. It's to, it's to find us, to save us, to, to make us clean or to purify us or to ransom us from sin and death. And the answers to that are nope, 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 and nope. Those were not Jesus' ultimate goal. Well, what about to make us new or to, to bring us back to spiritual life? The answer is still no. It is not any of those things. And now don't get me wrong. Jesus did all of that and much more. And those are amazing and glorious things that should never be minimized. They are necessary things. Receiving God's forgiveness, we have no hope without that. Being raised to new life with Jesus, we need that. But his grand purpose for us was something else, something sweeter, something deeper. So what was it? What is it? Jesus' grand purpose for us that led him to the cross. Today we're going to look at a few passages to answer that question. But we're going to start off 
in Galatians chapter four, and that's where we'll kind of keep coming back to throughout the morning. So Galatians chapter four. We're gonna start in verse three, in about the middle of verse three. And it says this. We were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, under the law to redeem those under the law. God sent his son to redeem. Now, if you remember, a couple of weeks ago, Kondo spoke about redemption. He told us that redemption is to secure the freedom of a captive. Redemption is to secure the freedom of a captive. And Kondo used the example of being in prison on death row. And then to be forgiven and set free. Forgiven of your crimes and told you can leave this prison cell. That's what redemption is. Verse 3 here lays out the problem. It says we were enslaved, imprisoned, and, and we couldn't free ourselves. We needed to be liberated by someone else from our sin and the penalty that we deserved for it. So in verse four, at the perfect time, the time that God knew, he took action for us. He sent Jesus to secure our freedom, to redeem us. And that's something we never could have done ourselves. So God took the initiative. He sent Jesus for us because Jesus was uniquely qualified for this impossible task. If we look at Galatians 4.4 there, it calls Jesus God's son. Jesus was fully God. And it took that for Jesus to be strong enough to live a life that was free of sin and full of good. No mere human could have done that. None of us could have done that. But it also says in verse 4 that Jesus was born of a woman. He was human. He was fully human as well. And so that meant he could pay the ransom for humanity's sin. Fully God, fully human. So he could bear the weight of sin and also be qualified to carry that sin. And so when Jesus set us free by taking our place on the cross, even though he was innocent, he secured our freedom. He told us we could leave that prison cell being bound to sin and death and the law. And so in Galatians 4, 5, it says he redeemed us for those who have placed their faith in Jesus. He's done that for us. We go from a death sentence that we deserve to dancing out of those prison doors, a free woman, a free man. And that is such an amazing and glorious thing. God redeems sinners like us. He sets us free. But God doesn't stop there. God wasn't done there. He kept going. And how do I know that? Because Galatians 4, 5 doesn't stop there. The verse doesn't stop there. It keeps going. So let's look at the rest of it. Picking up back in verse 4. It says this. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So that. So that is a purpose statement. It's there to show the purpose of what came right before it. God redeems us for the purpose of adopting us as his children. God set us free so that 
He could bring us into his family. There is the answer to our question. Jesus' ultimate purpose for us was to make us children of God. Redemption was necessary and redemption is glorious, but it it was for a purpose. It was so that God could make us his kids. So let's expand on that word picture of death row in a prison. God is the judge who calls us in and tells us that his son, Jesus, got us off death row. And, he, and God, the judge, tells us we are free to leave the prison. And then, as we, with great joy, walk out of those prison doors, free air filling our lungs, we see God again. He's no longer behind the judge's bench. But now he's standing next to a car with a smile on his face. Car door open. And he says, I had to set you free before I could take you home. Hop in. You're coming to live with me forever. We go from being shackled on death row to being a child of the king of the universe. I'm going to say that again to make sure you heard me. We go from being shackled on death row to being a child of the king of the universe. There's one pastor who put it this way. He said, becoming a child of God is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. The highest privilege that the gospel offers. And that's what it says here in Galatians 4. God did all of his saving work so that he could make us his children. And in case you're skeptical, this is not the only place this shows up in the Bible. Titus 3 says the same thing. Titus 3 verses 4 through 7 say this. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Okay, that's a lot of words. That feels like theological vocabulary soup. Like there's so much in there. So Paul wrote this letter to Titus, okay? And when Paul writes, it's like he gets so excited about what God has done, so excited about who Jesus is, so excited about the work of the Holy Spirit that he just can't write a simple sentence. He can't write a simple sentence. He has to throw all of these extra phrases in there describing how wonderful and glorious what God is doing is. He packs so much in here, being washed and regenerated, renewed by the Holy Spirit, hope of eternal life, Jesus, God's mercy, God's grace, justified. Really, each of those phrases could be its own sermon. But all of that goodness could actually distract us from what the core of this sentence is. We have to read closely in order to see it. All of those amazing phrases, but what's the actual bare bones sentence? Let's simplify this. Titus 3, 4 to 7. Let's take out the non-essential phrases and see what the core of this passage is. Ready? 
Let's see it. He saved us so that we might become heirs. That's it. That's the sentence. You take out all the parenthetical phrases, all the descriptions, and it says, he saved us so that we might become heirs. Now, wait a second. That says heirs. That does not say child. That does not say son. That does not say daughter. And you're right. But when Paul was writing this, you couldn't be an heir if you weren't a child. And what this highlights then is that if it's not just that we become God's children, but we are given all the rights and privileges that come with it. There are no second class kids in the family of God. We are fully and completely his children and get all the blessings that that entails, including an inheritance of eternal life with God and so much more. So to parallel this passage with Galatians 4 then, we'll just add one, of the, one phrase back into this verse from Titus 3. One phrase. So we'll look at it like this. He saved us so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs. Justified by his grace. Justification is God declaring us innocent because of Jesus. It means God's forgiveness for all of our sins, past, present, and future. Like redemption, justification is absolutely necessary and powerful and beautiful. It meets our primary spiritual need. We need to be forgiven. We have no hope without forgiveness as sinful people. But like redemption, justification is not the end goal. God justifies so that we might become his heirs, his children. Let's put both of them up there on the screen. Let's see them together. Galatians 4, God sent his son to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Titus 3, he saved us so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs. God is bringing us into his family and doing whatever is necessary to do it. Remember all those other phrases in Titus 3? He washes us and, and uh, to take our sin away. The Holy Spirit renews and regenerates, regenerates us. He pours out his mercy and his grace. He justifies us. He redeems us. All of that. God went through all of that. Not so that we would be free and forgiven and, and pure and all of the rest. He did it so that we could be his children. God brought you back to life. He forgave you. He saved you. He set you free. He washed you. He made you new. All that is great and glorious and praiseworthy. And all of that is so he could bring you into his home as his beloved child. God didn't didn't even have to save us to begin with. He didn't have to save us to begin with. And he went so far beyond that to make us a part of his family. The Apostle John, man, he was blown away by this truth. He was blown away by this when he wrote 1 John 3 1. He said this He said, See what great love the Father has lavished on us. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. 
That is what we are. We're talking about identity in this series, right? If you've put your trust in Jesus, you are a child of God. That is what you are. That is your identity, a child of God. Now, I want you to say that. I want to hear you say that. Say, I am a child of God. Okay, now say it like you believe it. I am a child of God. Again. Again. You are a child of the high king of heaven. That is what we are. That is such a beautiful and glorious truth. And that was Jesus' ultimate purpose in dying for us. To make us children of God. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes these pictures of how God does things on a like, cosmic, spiritual level... Sometimes they feel a little fuzzy. And something that can help me is if there's like a story of like real people that kind of play this out. And that just helps me sort of internalize it and grasp onto like, yes, that's it. Because I feel that sometimes more than I feel some of my spiritual needs. And so... We're going to take a second to look at a story tucked away in 2 Samuel. This is a story of a man named Mephibosheth. You like that? See if you can spell it. And in case anyone's wondering, I actually looked this up because I was curious. Mephibosheth was the 14,529th most popular boy name in 2020. Which means at least one person named their child Mephibosheth. I don't even know how you make that sh- like short, short, like chef. Phoebe? I don't know. Anyway, the story of Mephibosheth begins with Saul. Saul was Israel's first king. And his oldest son's name was Jonathan. Now Saul, he was a terrible king. He looked the part, but he didn't listen to God. He tried to do things his own way. And he made a mess of things. So as a consequence, God told Saul that the crown wouldn't keep going down his family line. His son, Jonathan, would not be king. Instead, God was going to make some kid named David king when Saul died. As you'd probably expect, Saul hated David. David was stealing the crown from Saul's son. So Saul tried to kill him on a number of occasions. But to thicken the plot a little bit, David and Jonathan were best friends. Then in 2 Samuel 4, Saul and Jonathan were both killed in a battle. Since Saul died, that meant David was now the king of Israel. And since Saul was Israel's first king, they didn't really know how this transfer of power thing would go. The only model they had to go off of was the other nations around them. And that was not a pretty picture. Because when a king from one family came into power instead of the previous family, like in this case, David instead of Saul, different lines, different dynasties, the new king would kill anyone connected 
to the previous king's family. It was a complete massacre because they wanted to make sure that there wasn't anyone alive who could claim to be the rightful king. They wanted to protect their power. So why does that matter? Jonathan, Saul's son, had a little boy named Mephibosheth. He was five years old when Saul died and David became king. So when the news of Saul's death reached the palace, there was a nurse there who loved this little boy and did not want to see him killed. And so she grabbed him and ran to try to save his life. She got away with him and he lived, but in the process, he fell, she dropped him, something happened, and he became lame. He was paralyzed. He couldn't use his feet. But he was alive. Fast forward a couple of decades. David's been king for a while now, and all of a sudden he has this thought. 2 Samuel 9, 3. It says this, David asked, is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? David wanted to show kindness to someone from the house of Saul. So David starts asking around. He starts asking around, hey, anybody know Anybody know if anyone from Saul's family is still around? Anyone know? Finally, he finds someone who knows about Mephibosheth, who's now a grown man, hiding slash living in some out-of-the-way town, far from the capital, trying to keep his head down, trying to keep a low profile. So David, when he finds out about Mephibosheth, asks for him to be brought to the palace. Now imagine you're Mephibosheth. You're doing your best not to let anyone know who your dad or grandfather were because you know you'll probably be killed if David finds out. And then one day, there's a knock on your door and it's men sent by the king to take you to the palace. You are certain that you are a dead man. And actually Mephibosheth had a young son too. And Micah. So not only would Mephibosheth have thought he was going to be killed, he looks at his young son and thinks that he's going to be killed as well. This would have been terrifying. When they finally get to the palace, this is what happens. Second Samuel 9, verses 6 through 9. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay honor to him. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth was overwhelmed. He had to be on his way there, going over in his mind, like, what are the arguments of how I can beg for my life? And if I can't beg for my life, beg for my son's life. But instead, David beats him to the punch and says, here is land. Here are servants to farm the land for you. And here is a place to sit at my table, a seat at the king's table. 
And then check this verse out, man. Check this. I love the Bible, man. Check this out. Ready? Samuel, 2 Samuel 9, 11. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Like one of the king's sons. This is awesome. David could have called him Mephibosheth and simply told him, you know what? I'm not going to kill you. Go home. Go live in peace. And that would have been great news to Mephibosheth. It would have freed him from that nagging worry in the back of his mind all the time, day in and day out, that he and his family were in danger if the king ever found out who he was. It would have been great news if David called him in and said, go home, you are safe. But do you remember what David said at the beginning here? What he wanted to do? Do you remember what he said? He said that he wanted to show God's kindness. God's kind of kindness to Mephibosheth. And so what did he do? David went way beyond simply sparing this man's life, who he should have killed. He treated Mephibosheth like one of his own children. And in doing so, David mirrors God's kindness, the one who goes beyond sparing our lives and offering us forgiveness and freedom. God goes beyond all of that and makes us his children to come and sit at his table, to come be a part of his family. And that makes such a dramatic difference. And if we start to understand our identity as God's children, if we start to understand his identity as our father, man, it changes things. Let's pop back to Galatians 4. Galatians 4 verse 6 says this, Because you are his sons, his children, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. God gives us his spirit, and there then comes this cry of Abba, Father. What is that about? Well, Aramaic was the language that Jesus and his disciples spoke. And Abba is the Aramaic word for father or dad. It's what a kid would call their father. It's a word full of affection and trust and closeness. Now, for us, the concept of calling God our Father has kind of become second nature, right? Like we think of you know, God the Father and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, you know, and, and if we're reading through the Bible even sometimes, like we see the word Father and we do this like little quick mental flip where we just kind of see God. And, and like the word Father just sort of melts into God and it's all equivalent and the same to us. We just kind of keep rolling. But in Jesus' day, it was very rare for someone to call God their Father, Except for Jesus. He did it all the time. He did it all the time. So when Jesus taught and referred to God as, as Father or Abba, it would have felt off to the people around him. Like too personal, too close. That's, can't talk about God like that. But think about what Jesus was trying to get across with this. It's exactly that. That God is close. That God is personal. That he is 
as close to us as a father is to a child. So I don't think it's a coincidence then that when, when Jesus taught his followers to pray, he started off with the words, our father. The Lord's prayer begins with the words, our father. You know, I honestly hadn't given this a ton of thought until this week, but I was like, when I pray, I usually start off with the word God. I address God as God, like God, thank you for, that's, that's the word that comes out of my mouth first. But to begin a prayer with Father is a reminder that I'm talking to someone who deeply cares and loves for me. You know, I won't get into details, but let's just say the past couple of weeks, I've spent way too much time on the phone with customer service reps. And when I'm on the phone with them, when they answer and they kind of give me that cheery voice and they tell me their name, Now, call me, call me cynical, but I just find it hard to believe that they really deeply personally care about me. You know, I'm not sure that they have my best interests at heart. You know, it's probably the company's best interests, right? On the other hand, if I call my dad, if I call my dad, I have all the confidence in the world that that man loves me has my best interest at heart. So this week, I want us to try something. When you pray, start by calling God, Dad. Kids, here's an assignment for you. Before lunch today, whoever prays for a meal, remind them to call God, Dad. All right? You're even allowed to interrupt them if they start wrong. Preacher said so. Not father, but dad. Father feels, I don't know, it feels formal, right? Like, I don't know that I know anyone who refers, like, my father, like, it feels almost pretentious and British. <laughs> but yesterday, like, I went for a walk and, and I, like, said, you know, started to pray and I said, God, and I was like, no, no, no. Dad, and it felt weird. It felt weird. Dad has this like too personal, too close kind of feel to it that Jesus' disciples probably felt when they heard Jesus say, call him father. And I need to let that feeling, we need to let that feeling remind us that God wants a close relationship with us. He wants a close relationship with you. He wants you to trust him and know that he has your best interests at heart because God is our loving father and he really wants us to internalize that. Because how we primarily view God has drastic implications for how we interact with him and what we, and what we think about him and how we respond and how we live out our faith. I mean, Think about this. If we primarily see God as the one who has made us clean, the one who has washed away our sin, I feel like in that instance, we kind of you know, respond to him like we're afraid of messing up. We're afraid of getting dirty again. You know, like, like God's going to say like, oh, I just cleaned you up. Can't you just stay clean for like an hour? 
Like the thing we say to our kitchen, right? Like, can't you just stay clean for an hour? If we primarily view God as the one that cleaned us up, like that, that's sort of the feel in our relationship with him. Or think about justification, where God is our judge, and he, and he declares us innocent. If you're on trial before a judge, and the judge says, you're innocent, you're free to go, and you walk out those doors, you have no intention of seeing that judge ever again. The judge's decision has ongoing impact in your life, for sure. But the judge doesn't have an ongoing role in your life. The judge's proclamation of innocence is actually the end of your relationship. So if we primarily think of God as our judge, the one who declares us innocent, what kind of relationship are we going to pursue with him? Probably next to none. And God is the one who makes us clean. He is the judge. But I I think God primarily wants us to view him as our father. Thinking about God as the one who brought us into his family, as one of his children, us calling him dad, like, that's a completely different thing. A more beautiful thing. It's, it's, it's about an ongoing relationship based on love and trust and affection. J.I. Packer was a pastor and an author, and he describes this so well in his book, Knowing God. So instead of reinventing the wheel, I'm just going to read some of what he says, and it is so powerful and good. Here's what, here's what, he, here's what he writes. God loved us, so he redeemed us, forgave us, took us as his sons and daughters, and gave himself to us as our father. Nor does his grace stop short with that initial act, any more than the love of human parents who adopt stops short with the completing of the legal process that makes the child theirs. The establishing of the child's status as a member of the family is only a beginning. The real task remains to establish a genuinely familial relationship between your adopted child and yourself. It is this above all that you want to see. Accordingly, you set yourself to win the child's love by loving the child. You seek to excite affection by showing affection. So with God and all throughout our life in this world and to eternity beyond. He will constantly be showing us in one way or another more and more of his love. And thereby increasing our love to him continually. The prospect before the adopted children of God is an eternity of love. The prospect before an adopted child of God is an eternity of love. If you're a Christian, if you've trusted Jesus, listen to me. God loves you. He loves you today and he will love you forever. There's an eternity of God's love in front of you. No matter what. You might resist his love. You might disbelieve that he could love you. You might not love him back all the time. But God, as your perfect parent, will constantly be showing you his love every day now and every day for eternity. 
He will be gently trying to win your love by loving you. If, you're, if, if you haven't put your trust in Jesus, if you're not a Christian, God is offering this love to you too. Trust in Jesus, receive his forgiveness, be set free from sin and shame and guilt and God will gladly, gladly make you his beloved child too. So what was Jesus' ultimate purpose in dying for us? It was to make us children of God. So now when God looks at us, what does he ultimately see? He sees one of his kids. He doesn't see a sinner. He doesn't see a project. I'd argue he doesn't even primarily see someone he saved. He primarily sees, he ultimately sees one of his kids when he looks at you. Since that is true, how then does God treat us? He treats us like a perfect father would because that's exactly who he is. God is patient with you. He is gentle and kind to you. He gives you attention and affection. He listens intently whenever you want to talk to him. He is interested in you as an individual and delights in you. He has your best interest at heart. He gives you wise counsel. He helps you grow and mature. He provides for you and watches over you. He disciplines you when you need it and lets you learn from your mistakes, but he's also slow to anger and quick to forgive. He comforts you when you're scared or hurt. He will never leave or abandon you. He is always there for you and wants you to feel secure in his love. He takes joy in your successes but doesn't measure you by them. He is generous. He is completely trustworthy and he will keep every single promise that he has ever made. He enjoys you. He smiles when he looks at you. That, that is our father. And he loves you more than you could possibly imagine. And we can rest, we can trust in his love. Kirsten's gonna come out in a little bit, but we're gonna close in prayer first. Dad, Dad, we thank you that you have come near to us. We thank you that you have redeemed us, that you have forgiven us, that you have washed us, that you have brought us to life so that you could make us your children. 
thank you for your ongoing everyday love. May we become more and more aware of it. May we become more and more trusting of it. And it may it continue to stir up more and more love for you and more and more love for others in us. God, we do love you. We do thank you. And dad, we, we ask that you would continue your work in us as we know you will. Thank you for being trustworthy. Thank you for being good. Thank you for sending Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.